Good morning, Veritas. Glad that you've joined us here in person. There's people online watching, listening. Uh, so we're, we're glad that you've uh, joined us this morning. We're continuing our study through the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 11, this famous chapter of the Bible. If you're new to the to the Bible, we're getting a lot of these stories from the Old Testament. And so uh, this is uh, about this guy Moses, and you can read about his story in the book of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and you can read all about Moses' life. We're going to, so if there's some things that you're a little confused about, uh, we're not going to be able to go into great detail about his life, but there's some things that the writer of Hebrews wants us to see from Moses' life. Faith, as Jeff said last week, it's hard to define. And so we're, the writer is, is looking at these examples of faith, like looking at a diamond. You know, you, you look at it from different angles and you see, uh, you know, the, the beauty of the diamond from a different angle. That's, that's kind of what we're doing with faith. We're looking at it. We're, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. Well, this morning we're going to look at the crisis of faith, the cost of faith, the motivation of faith, and the basis of faith. So we'll, we'll work through this. I want to start first with the crisis of faith. Here's one thing that I observe that we love as humans. We love safety. Don't we love safety? I mean, I hear this all the time. Hey, be safe, play it safe, stay safe, drive safe. Right? We want to be safe. We even have safe spaces for emotional safety now. I mean, this is the thing. It's, it's amazing, our desire to insulate ourselves from suffering, risk, all these things. It was interesting, this guy, uh, a secular social psychologist, um, he co-wrote this book called The Coddling of the American Mind, where this description of it, uh, it says they explore, he explores the unintended consequences of safetyism. Anytime you add ism to something, it's like the belief in it. It's almost like the new religion of our culture is safetyism. The idea that people are weak and should be protected rather than exposed to challenges. Safety culture began with a focus on physical safety, removing sharp objects, choke hazards, requiring child seats, not letting children walk home alone, but now includes emotional safety. That is not being exposed to ideas that could cause psychological distress. Taken together, the focus on physical and mental safety makes young people weaker. It has created a fragile generation experiencing a dramatic rise in anxiety, depression, and suicide. Humans are what author and statistician Nassim Taleb calls anti-fragile. We benefit from shocks. Humans thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors, and love, adventure, risk, and uncertainty. Safetyism is the new religion in America. Now, here's where this makes its way into Hebrews 11. Here's the problem, Christian. Jesus didn't come to make you safe. He came to make you his follower. And we know where his story ended, right? The cross, that hill, Calvary. Sometimes following Jesus leads you straight down a path of suffering. 
And if safety is your ultimate goal in this life, you cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. An invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to a life of risk and suffering. This is what we see in Hebrews now. So this is the crisis of faith in America. Following Jesus at a safe distance. That's the crisis of faith as we approach this text. Following Jesus at a safe distance. Jesus says in Luke 18, 8, when the son of man returns to earth, will he find faith on this earth? Are you ready for Hebrews 11 now? Okay. We, yeah, Christy, I love it. I love the whoops, the clapping. That is awesome. We need, we need a little more of that. It's a little more of that. So, so keep going. But Hebrews 11 is how we can stay dangerously close to Jesus. You ready? Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 23. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. Okay, here's the context. The Jewish people, God's people, were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. They multiplied and became a threat to Pharaoh and his kingdom. And so what does Pharaoh do? He makes this law that every male Jewish baby is to be killed. Cool story about some midwives that are like, no way, no way are we going to murder these image bearers of God? No way. But there's one family in particular that rejects this decree from the king. This family says, we're not going to kill our baby. So they raise him three months, then puts him in a basket on the bank of the Nile River And Pharaoh's daughter found this baby and named him Moses. Moses means to be drawn out. Like we took him out of the water. We found him in the Nile. He was in this little basket, this little baby. Now, here's what the writer of Hebrews points out about the faith of these parents, of Moses' parents. It says they didn't fear the king's edict. Mom and dad risked everything to have this baby. The baby would have been killed, but the parents refuse to give in to the fear of Pharaoh, and they have this child. Moses' parents chose faith over safety. Having this baby could cost us our lives. They risked their own death to have this child. And what was the result of their faith? Moses the greatest man in the Old Testament, the man who delivered God's people that gave the Ten Commandments that 3,500 years later, here we are still talking about this guy Moses. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to look at the parents' faith that had this child. I think that parents are so courageous 
today, right? You, you take the risk of having a child. That's faith. And in the midst of opposition, they had this child. Look at verse 24 through 27. He goes on, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. For Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. Moses does the unthinkable. Moses trades in. So, he, so here's this little baby Moses, raised in Pharaoh's household, becomes a prince of Egypt. Amazing story. I mean, you don't get any more prosperous. This guy, he, he's 40 years old at the time this critical event happens. He's educated in Egypt. He's at the prime of his career, prince of Egypt. The grass is not greener on the other side for Moses because there is no other side. He owns all the grass or the sand of Egypt, whatever it is. He has access to everything in this kingdom. And he sees this Hebrew slave and the Hebrew slaves getting mistreated. And Moses knows that he's one of them. Like, I'm one of those Israelites. He knows his story. Maybe his, his you know, his, his mom, not his biological mom, but his mom said, hey, we found you in the Nile, and you're actually one of those Hebrews. He knew his own story. He knew who he was. And so Moses does the unthinkable The prince of Egypt trades in all the pleasure, all the prosperity, all the power, all the privilege of this position, and he trades all of that in for suffering with God's people. He considered, it says, reproach for the sake of Christ. Reproach, what does that word mean? If someone addresses you with disapproval, you have experienced reproach. They're looking at your life and they're just like, I disapprove of you. I disapprove of your actions. He chose that for the sake of Christ. I think reproach is an understatement. Exodus 2.15 says, when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. I mean, Moses standing up for the Hebrews. Pharaoh goes after him, tries to kill him. So it says when he left, when he left Egypt, Mo Moses actually left Egypt twice. He left once at age 40. And he went off to this place called Midian. And he came back when he was 80 years old. He spent 40 years sort of in exile from Egypt 
God speaks to him, burning bush. You can read about it in Exodus 3. And God speaks to him and says, hey, Moses, here's who I am. I'm the Lord, I'm Yahweh. And I want you to go back to Pharaoh. Remember that guy who tried to kill you? Most powerful man in the world. Go back and tell him to let my people go. Moses has this amazing conversation with God in Exodus 4. It's hilarious. He basically, Moses says, hey, God, I have a speech impediment. I'm not good at talking. I stutter. I don't, we don't know exactly what it was, but it was some speech problem. And he's like, I can't do it. Like, you picked the wrong guy for the job. And God says, oh, yeah, Moses, who made your mouth? Uh, you have a point, right? So he's like, well, please, can you send my brother Aaron? So he's fine, I'll get Aaron. And it's a whole thing. But what he's saying is, I want you to go back. I don't want you to stand up to that powerful man. And I want you to tell him, let my people go. You speak truth to that powerful Pharaoh. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh. And what happens is 10 times he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart keeps getting hardened after all these plagues, the frogs, the darkness, the locusts, the blood, all nine plagues go by. And then there's a 10th plague. And all of the firstborn Egyptians as judgment on Pharaoh and his nation, all the firstborn Egyptian males are going to be killed. And so Pharaoh says, fine, get out of here. Drives the people, leave Egypt. But Pharaoh sort of comes to his senses and chases the Israelites once he realizes, I'm so mad at these guys, I'm gonna go kill them. You guys, the, the Israelites leave. Uh, there's probably at this time about a million Jewish people. They're these slaves, peasants. They have nothing. They leave. They get trapped in the desert, in the wilderness, with this massive sea in the desert, the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is coming after them. And here they are trapped with their backs against the sea, and now they're looking at Moses like, you brought us out here just to get us killed? We're trapped. Here's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see. He says that Moses considered reproach for the sake of Christ. He chose disapproval. He cho chose the risk of death. He put it all on the line for the sake of Christ. Here's the cost of faith. We saw the crisis of faith following Jesus at a safe distance because we don't want to risk suffering. Well, here's the cost of faith, disapproval and death. The cost of faith, disapproval, that word reproach, and death. Few things are harder in life to face than reproach, than rejection. And here's, here's my theory. I think that all of us, have this little middle schooler in all of us that want to sit at the cool kids table? Do you guys have that, that little 13-year-old in you? You want to be accepted. You want to be liked. You don't want to be rejected. You want to be invited to the party. You want to associate with important people. 
You want that doctor or professor or coach or whoever to know your name. You want to be a part. You want to belong. There's a, you want the good seats at the game, the skybox. There's a sophisticated adult version of the cool kids table. It's called the cocktail party. I don't know. I've never been invited to one of those. Uh, I'm not one of the cool kids, but in Iowa City, there's like this, they don't go to the movies, they go to the theater, right? It's like the, the cool crowd, the influencers. We want to be a part of that. Moses had to make the exact same decision you and I have to make. Whose approval are we going to live for? Faith forces you to face your greatest fear, the fear of rejection. Maybe it's family, friends, coworkers, and your fear of death. Pharaoh, he could kill me. Now we come to this, we have this question of why would anyone in their right mind choose disapproval and death? Why would anyone think that this would be a rational decision. Well, he tells us, he says, he considered, he thought about it. He considered reproach for Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. He talks about greater wealth, reward. Here's Jeff's favorite verse, Hebrews eleven six, sneaking in here again, that without faith is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The only reason that faith will ever make sense is if you factor in eternity. You have to factor in the resurrection of the dead into the equation for you to think that this would be a good idea. Moses, he considered, I love that. He considered, he thought about it. He did the math, he ran the numbers and he's like, it's totally worth it. This is the third point, the motivation of faith. The motivation, the reason behind faith is Cost-benefit analysis. You've come to Econ 101 or whatever class you talk about cost-benefit analysis. This systematic process that businesses use to analyze which decisions to make and which to forego. In business, what you want to do is factor emotions out of the equation. Is this a good business deal? You can't trust your feelings. You have to think logically. And so you put the benefits on one side and the cost of the other. So you take the benefits and you subtract the cost. And at the end, if the benefits are more than the cost, then you should do the deal. This is what we have to do like Moses. We consider what this will cost us. And then we consider the benefits of 
stepping out in faith. And so the cost-benefit analysis applied to faith is, what will obedience to Jesus cost me? It will cost me potentially my family, my friendships, my job. And then I subtract that from the benefits. What are the benefits? First Corinthians says, no eye has seen nor has the heart of man comprehended what God has in store for those who love him. When we look at the weight of eternal glory and we see eternity, we imagine forever. All of a sudden, our suffering looks like nothing compared to the weight of glory. So let's do an imaginary counseling session with that little middle schooler, that little 13-year-old. The 13-year-old sits down with you and, and says, I'll do anything to sit with the cool kids. I'll, I'll drink, I'll smoke, I'll do stuff with my boyfriend, girlfriend that I shouldn't do. I'll mouth off to my teacher I'll do whatever it takes. I just want to sit at that table. I want to be a part of the cool kids. I want to be invited to their birthday party. What would you tell that little 13-year-old? You would say, oh, it's going to be gone in a moment. You live your life and it will come and go in just a moment, right? You're going to appeal to them on the basis of time. Don't give up your whole future and your whole life for that one moment of their approval. It's not worth it. That's what I'm saying to you and to us. This is the same logic we need. We need to, with Moses, consider reproach for Christ as greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since we are looking ahead to the reward, look at verse 28. He says, by faith, Moses instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. Every time Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, Pharaoh responded with, no way. No way I'm going to do that. And the 10th plague, the 10th plague, the final plague, God kills all the firstborn Egyptian males. And he tells Moses, hey, Moses, tonight an angel of death is coming. So here's what you're going to do. I want you to sacrifice. Every family needs to find a lamb and they need to sacrifice the unblemished, perfect lamb, the best lamb, and take the blood from that lamb and smear it around the doorframe of the house. And when the angel comes and sees the blood over the door, they will pass over that house. The only way to spare your family from death is the blood. Why blood? Blood is a symbol of death and judgment. 
the lamb, the blood of the lamb is, this, this lamb gets, in a sense, what the judgment that the people deserve. So I'm hiding under the blood of the lamb. And to this day, 3,500 years later, Jewish people still celebrate Passover. And Jesus Christ was crucified during Passover. The Bible is an amazing story because it really tells one story. It's the story of Jesus. The crescendo of history is Jesus Christ crucified. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Moses, through the instituting the Passover, was pointing us to Jesus Christ and saying, the only place for refuge is under the blood of the lamb. So now we come to the basis of our faith. The basis, the foundation of our faith is the blood of Jesus. There's no other way to be saved than the blood of Jesus Christ over your life. The only way to escape the judgment of God is to hide yourself in the wounds of Jesus Christ. There is no other way for a human to be saved than through Jesus Christ. And I want to, when I talk about the basis of faith, I want to go back to something that Jeff, Pastor Jeff said last week. Remember how Jeff was talking about faith. It's not the amount of faith. It's not, can we muster up enough faith to get the thing that we want, right? That's, that's not the faith of Hebrews 11. He's saying it's not the amount of faith. It's the object of faith. I want to illustrate this. I, I asked my, my kids to help me out with the little project. So I, I've, got, I've got some props here. So just hang on tight here as we... Get some props here. How you guys doing back here in the green room? All right. Good? Okay. They're doing great back there. All right. So here we go. Um, this chair. You guys see this chair? There's two chairs here. I want to start with this chair. Um, this little wood chair um, is, is kind of a chair that, that we have at our table. It's, it's useful, but... I don't even know if you can call this a chair. Doesn't it look like a step stool? But this chair, um, how many of you guys think that this chair will hold me? You think this chair will hold me? Okay, yeah, yeah, awesome. And it, uh, yeah, but I don't like this chair. I don't like this chair. Um, I don't even think it could be called a chair. I mean, look, it's got a little hole in the top, a handle, like it's a step stool. It's not a chair. So I think that's dumb. So uh, I made my own chair. Okay, this chair right here is my chair. My chair would hold anybody. And I think that just by you guys saying, like, this is the only chair that will hold me, I think that's so narrow-minded <laughs> that I made my own chair. And my chair will, will definitely hold me. And you know what? I'm going to trust my chair. And I have faith. You guys, I have faith. And you know what? I've prayed about it. 
And um, I just think that God wants me to sit in this chair. So um, I have tons of faith. And I'm going to keep mustering up faith. I'm going to say, God, you promised. You said by faith, I'm saved. So I'm trusting this chair that I made. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Awesome. Whoa. All right. Oh, wow. Um, I probably should have trusted this chair, right, guys? This chair? This chair, it doesn't look like a chair, but it holds me. It's great. It's super useful. Here's my point, church. Here's the point. There is no other way to be saved than the old rugged cross of Jesus Christ. And some of you are trusting Jesus and you're like, I don't know if I have enough faith to be saved, but I do trust Jesus. I struggle with doubt. I'm having a hard time. I don't understand my life. I don't understand this thing that I'm going through, but I'm trusting Jesus and I only have the faith of a mustard seed. I only have a little bit of faith. And sometimes I wonder if I'm even a real Christian. But guess what? The amount of your faith is irrelevant because it's the object of your faith that matters. And some of you have decided that's too narrow minded, that's too radical. So I'm going to build my own chair. Here's what I'm saying, church. What is safety anyway? We learn in this last verse that it's not a place. It's a person. Verse 29, by faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. Where would you rather be with the most powerful army on earth coming with horses and chariots and spears in victory formation or with the suffering slaves of God trapped against a sea in the wilderness? Which camp do you want to be in? I want to suffer with God's people and the people are scared and God parts the sea. They walk across. The Egyptians try to do it. They're all killed. They all drowned. Safety is not a place. It's a person. We will do anything to insulate ourselves from risk And we are following Jesus at a safe distance because you know what? I want Jesus in my life. Like I want the miracles. I want the healing. I want the salvation. I want the blessing. I want all those benefits of faith, but I don't want any of the cost. I don't want to follow so close 
that it will lead me to Calvary with Jesus. I don't want to get that close. So I follow Jesus at a safe distance. But here's the conclusion of Hebrews 11. As I look at the life of Moses and our lives, following Jesus at a safe distance will keep you safe and distant. You will go through your life. You'll still show up at all the church activities but you'll be distant from God. Let's be a people of faith who follow dangerously close to Jesus Christ. What does dangerously close look like? What does it look like for you to not lean on your own understanding, but to trust God with all your heart? What does it look like to sit in the chair of Christ, to obey Jesus and not your own ideas and self. Maybe it's getting out of a relationship, a dating relationship with someone who's pulling you down and pulling you away from Jesus. Maybe it's staying in a relationship, a difficult marriage that's hard and you have to suffer in this marriage for Jesus. Maybe it's one guy I was talking to talked about men's group. He's like, I had a job that started early and I could never go to men's group. So I just told my boss, hey, I'm going to be 30 minutes late for work. Because he was doing what coach was talking about, investing your own discipleship. He's like, I have to have that men's group in my life. I need to be challenged by other men. And so I just told my boss, hey, I'm going to be 30 minutes late. Maybe it's going to cost me my job, but I, I, I need that. I hear so many excuses for why we couldn't, can't do this, can't do that. And it's not can't, it's I won't. It's I have better ideas for how to spend my money. I mean, tithing is not a possibility for us. Money's just too tight. Maybe that's radical, dangerous faith, is giving when you just don't feel like you can afford it. Maybe it's taking a day of rest and not working seven days a week because you look at all the work in your life and like, I can't rest. I got to work seven days a week. And that's leaning on your own understanding. Maybe it's you're a school teacher and your superintendent or your principal hands you a book to read to your second grade students that will cause them to question their own gender. And you might have to risk losing your job. Or maybe you're a physician and you have to prescribe something or do a medical procedure that goes against your conscience. And it might cost you your job. Or you're a resident under a supervising physician. Maybe you are a therapist and it's illegal for you to speak the truth. What will you do? Maybe you're a business owner and you could take over the business and commandeer control of the business if you just cut this person out of the business. What are you going to do? You're in a lab, you're in a workplace, and everybody's mocking all those Christians out there. Are you going to be silent or are you going to speak? Let's pray.
Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, show us the steps of faith that we must take. As we walk to the communion tables, we imagine ourselves following you to Calvary. We hear the words of Jesus in our minds, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must take up their cross and follow me.